If you would turn to John chapter 12, we're going to start there this morning. I don't know about you, and I don't know where you are, but um, I don't know if you like the week more or do you like the weekend, and I like the weekend. You know, the week is full of the routine, the mundane, sack lunches, uh, dress codes that we have to adhere to, rising early, commuting, rushed appointments, overtime hours, deadlines, less sleep, projects, trips to the doctor, rushing to eat, sometimes not eating or eating in the car, and just a calendar squeezed Monday through Friday with the busyness of life. But the weekend is much different. It's full of excitement. Sometimes there's birthday parties. Do you all remember birthday parties? Some of us don't have them anymore, but, but uh, grandkids and kids have those. There's camping, there's sports, there's movies, there's a chance to sleep in, there's a chance to stay in your pajamas till 3 o'clock in the afternoon if you want to on Saturday, and, and just no deadlines. And so uh, probably for all of us, um, the weekend is a, pretty, is a pretty exciting thing. There was a weekend that I would say is the weekend of all weekends, and it happened a couple thousand years ago. And the implications from what happened that weekend have tremendous truth for us today on this weekend in 2019. That weekend 2,000 years ago was like many of the other Passover weekends, even though it was a very significant weekend for the Jews. But in Israel, it was something they had done year after year. The Passover came, and it went, it came, and it went, and it came, and it went, and they'd been doing this for a very long time. But this one was very unique in what would happen. Everything that the Old Testament had spoken about and had promised was going to come to a fulfillment um, at that time. The Jewish people at that time um, had this great expectation that the Messiah was going to come. And their understanding of the Messiah was the Messiah was going to come and rescue them from their oppressors. At that time, it, had, it was Rome. Before, it had been many other oppressors. But Rome was there. In the years leading up to the weekend where Jesus died, there had been many rebellions that had taken place. And so... The Roman government had instituted something to kind of calm things down. And what they had instituted was is that they would release somebody famous among the Jewish people that hopefully would kind of settle things down and would kind of appease the people. But on this Passover week and weekend, very significant things happened. So look with me in John chapter 12, and I want to show you what happened on Monday of Passion Week. We're going to kind of walk through kind of what happened uh, during that weekend, but this is before that weekend even began. John twelve twelve. So the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these, these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the de- dead, continued to bear witness. They couldn't get over it. They just continued to say, he rose this guy, Lazarus. Verse 18, and the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world 
has gone after him. So that's their perspective on Monday. Could this weekend, in many of their minds, be the fulfillment of what they'd long to? The Messiah has come and he's going to rescue them from Roman oppression. But as the crowds are and back then, as crowds are today, there's a fickleness to crowds and, a, and sometimes a fickleness to uh, religious people. Later that afternoon, after they had laid down in the morning the palm branches, and they had declared, Hosanna, save us, righteous one, save us, and, and they had proclaimed all of these things, they turned and saw Jesus in a different way. Look at verse 36 now of John chapter 12. This is later that day. Jesus has just given a teaching, and they kind of didn't like it, and it just kind of further added to some things. Verse 36. Jesus says, Why you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they didn't make it known so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now look at 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now watch this. Just totally different. So this is in the morning. Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna. Now in the afternoon, they're like, eh, we don't really believe. And so just the, the turning of this and all of this is, was designed by God because the fulfillment of this week would bring Jesus to the cross. And I just want to remind you and I this morning of the significance of this, of that he had come to his own, John said. John would later write, the Apostle John, John 1.11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him and so we just see the tremendous implications of what was beginning to take place on this weekend that people would reject people would believe and it would bring about so many different things now let me just deal with this and then we're going to walk and and see some things on this weekend of weekends that were fulfilled and that um, have a lot of of things this morning that you and I need to see and understand for our lives Some of the biggest events in the history of the world took place on this weekend. And they have great implications not only for today, but for the rest of our lives and for our families. As a matter of fact, most of the rest of the New Testament is spent on explaining the implications that flow out of that Jesus died and rose again. You know, what's the implications for the church, for family, for child rearing, for walking in obedience? And so... This weekend of weekends has great significance to our faith. And so I thought this morning it would be important for us uh, to remember these things. And so I want to do that. And so the first thing we're going to look at this morning is, is I want to talk about the fulfillment of Scripture. And I want to talk about the fulfillment of the Passover in regard um, to Jesus. Christ had humbly come into the world and had waited patiently. Can you imagine being God in a body and you know you're God in a body and you're waiting on your Father to say, The timing is right to reveal all of this. And so Jesus just humbly for 30 years or so uh, just was a carpenter, was raised in a home. He was obedient to his parents. 
uh, he worked with his father, and he just was faithful in all of that. And when the time came for him to publicly begin his ministry, some pretty significant things began to happen. At the time Jesus came upon the scene, John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan, and thousands upon thousands of people were coming. So you're having this spiritual revival in the nation of Israel, but John understood who he was and what his purpose was. And one day Jesus came walking by and John was there with his, some of his disciples. And John said these words in John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John was saying, It's not me. That's the one right there. That's the one that we have been waiting for. And in that phrase, the Lamb of God... John was affirming that this ritual in the Old Testament of the sacrifice of the lambs was going to be fulfilled in that one that was walking before them. So John is pointing him out. And what I would like to do this morning is I would like to share with you that all those thousands of years that they were doing the Passover, on that weekend of weekends, it was fulfilled The Passover pictures and the symbols and the shadows was fulfilled that weekend in Jesus. And so I want to talk about those because I think they're incredibly glorious. Here's the first one about the Passover lamb. The lamb was selected for the Passover sacrifice on the 10th month of Nisan. When Jesus came in the text that we just read a while ago in John chapter 12, he came riding in on a donkey. Guess what day he came riding in to Jerusalem? On the 10th of Nisan. This was happening at the same time because what they would do is they would get the lambs from Bethlehem and they would bring the lambs from Bethlehem and they would walk them along the road and they would enter Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. So watch. As the lambs are entering into Jerusalem for the sacrifice of the Passover, the Lamb of God in a body and skin was also entering Jerusalem at the very same time. Guess where Jesus was from? Bethlehem. The pictures of this fulfillment are incredible. Where the Passover lambs were kept was in Bethlehem. Jesus was born there. What about the crowd's response to the lambs? As the Passover lambs were brought into Jerusalem from Bethlehem, the crowds would cry out, Hosanna. When Jesus rode in that day we just read a while ago, what were they saying? They were saying, Hosanna. They were recognizing and affirming they even called him king in the text there. The word Hosanna means save now or please save. What about the lamb? What type of lamb did it need it to be? Well, Exodus 12.5 tells us this. The Old Testament shadow was this. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male a year old, and you may take it from either the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. This is tremendously significant. So they would bring the lambs in on Monday. On Friday, the lambs would be killed for the Passover. Incidentally, at that time, 250,000 lambs were sacrificed yearly at the Passover. So watch. So the lambs are being brought in as Jesus is being brought in on Monday. On Friday, those lambs that had been brought in were being sacrificed at the very same time that Jesus was being sacrificed on the cross. 
So the shadow of this was incredible, these things happening at the same time, because Jesus is the fulfilled reality of the Old Testament shadow. The Old Testament lambs were kept for four days. Why were they kept for four days? Because they had to be lambs without spot, right? We just read that a while ago. They had to be without blemish. Did you know that Jesus was examined as well? He was examined by the high priest. He was examined by Annas. He was examined um, by the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and Herod, and others. And guess what they couldn't find with Jesus? They couldn't find anything that he had done wrong. So what did they do? They lied. So Jesus was examined, and he was found to be the lamb without spot. What about the leaven of the Old Testament, the bread? Well, leaven represented in the Old Testament sin. It also represents that in the New Testament as well. And so Exodus twelve eighteen says this, In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all of your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. So the Jews had to do a little house cleaning. There was leaven in the house. It had to be gone. During that time, the bread that they made um, had to be made without leaven. Leaven rises. It's a symbol of sin. And and, and what it does, it just kind of gets everything where and and just makes a mockery of things and a destruction of things and so here we are is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the unleavened bread of the Passover feast Jesus arrives in Jerusalem you know what the first thing that he does is as he gets off the donkey he goes into the temple and does what anybody remember it's the second time he does it it looks like he over cleanses it overturns the money changers again cleanses it out, and he calls it, y'all have made this house a house of robbers. And Jesus goes in, and he brings about that. Now, we know the fulfillment of him in the unleavened bread is this, is he was the bread of life that was without sin. There was no leaven. There was no sin that was found in him. What about the actual Passover? Well, the Old Testament shadow um, gives us this picture that the angel of death would come, and if there was blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would come to the home and would pass over that house and go to the next. And it took place all through the land of Egypt back in, in that time. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus really wanted to eat this last Passover with the disciples. And so that night, um, he instituted something that we celebrate here once a month and at other times as well, of what we call the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. And that night, Jesus took the Passover meal and, and he communicated this great reality that we talk about when he took the bread he broke it and he said this is my body take this and eat and and he was indicating that his body was going to be broken then he took the cup and he said this cup this this wine the fruit of the vine here um, represents my blood that is going to be shed and you are to drink this and so he institutes that night of the passover that there would be something now moving forward that they were to do and they were to do this and to remember uh, what he had done Now, the fulfillment of all of this comes in this. Just as it was in the Old Testament, the blood saved the people. Now, for us, because of the altar of the cross and the blood that was shed and the satisfaction of the sacrifice that was there, we now, those of us who have faith, we are covered by that blood so that we don't fear the separation, and we don't have to fear something called death anymore. Death for us as believers is just passing into a new phase of life. 
into the very presence of Him. And so we don't worry about that because we are covered by this great reality. And Christ is the fulfillment of that. Well, what about the sacrifice of the Lamb? Well, I, fi- I find it incredibly fascinating that as Jesus is being nailed to the cross, that in the temple, guess what is happening on that Friday? At just about the same time as the lamb, the animal lamb, is being sacrificed by the high priest, Jesus is outside of Jerusalem being laid down on the cross. His hands and his feet are being nailed to it, symbolizing just this, this great picture of this is the fulfillment of what this has represented all of these years. So as we come and we think about the weekend of weekends, God has always communicated who He is through His Word, through a revelation of Himself, through Word. Did you notice what, a while ago when we read in John chapter 12, John just kept saying, this is a fulfillment of what has been spoken, what has been written. And so now we have this fulfillment, living fulfillment of what has been written, what has been spoken, and is being fulfilled outside of Jerusalem. And the amazing reality of that is incredible when you see the symbolism of what is taking place inside the temple and outside of the city walls on Golgotha with Christ there. I, wanna, I want us to read something that I think is just really important. So I want you to go, to go to Hebrews, go to your right, and go to Hebrews chapter 10 just for a moment. And then we're going to look at a few other things from this weekend of weekend. Can't talk about the fulfillment of the Passover without coming to Hebrews chapter 10. Just incredible, important text. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now look at verse 8. And when he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. But then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he is the fulfillment. Hebrews 10 
is affirming that of all of this picture of the Passover. And now in Him we are covered by His blood. Now those of us who are not perfect, who cannot be perfect, who can't work our way to perfection, He has done a work through His blood to give us a righteousness that allows us to be cleansed and to be His and to be forgiven and to be secure and it's an amazing reality. Is that not amazing this morning when you see the fulfillment of these? Just what was happening in two places in Jerusalem that day. One inside the temple, one outside, and just all the things that are happening with Christ. Now I want you to go to John chapter 18. The last intimate conversation Jesus has before he dies is with a Roman pagan idol worshiper. His name is Pilate. And it's pretty fascinating what happens and takes place here because there's a, a discussion and an examination of what is true. John 18, verse 33. And it's the second thing I want us to see this morning is the discussion of truth. John 18, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said, So you are a king. And Jesus said, you say that I'm a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now let's just stop here for a moment. So this is the last conversation at depth that Jesus has before he dies. And it's not with one of the disciples. He says something to John while he's on the cross. um, But it's just a statement to John about John taking care of Mary. So here's Jesus. He's not been beaten yet. He has been arrested. He's gone back and forth throughout the night. There's been no sleep. Peter has been denying him. He has been under trial. And now he is standing before Pilate. And there's a discussion of truth. I want you to notice this. Did you notice what Jesus said there? I came to establish, what did he say? T word, truth. This world, watch this. Don't miss this. We live in a world today where everything is subjective truth. You have your truth. I have my truth. Those people get to have their truth. They get to have your truth. We all get to have our truth. But Jesus says, no, I came to establish one truth. There's one truth. There's only one truth. And I am the truth. So as he's having this conversation with this Roman idol worshiper, evil man named Pilate, he is saying to him, I have come to establish one way, one path, one one life. I am it. And so Pilate, I think, is a cynic. I think when he says, what is truth? I I don't think that he's necessarily um, seeking the truth. I I think he's just going, 
Are you kidding me? What is truth? Everybody has a truth. I think there's nothing new. I think in the first century, it's just like America in 2019. Everybody has their truth. They have their gods. They have their belief system and all of this. And Jesus is saying, I've come to abolish all of that. I am it. I'm the point of everything. And I have come to establish truth. I have come to do this. And he was telling them, listen, Pilate, it's not what's true for you and what's true for them. No, I am the one who is truth. And there are 222 verses in the Bible that contain the word truth. And John uses 10% of them. It was a big emphasis to John to say, Jesus is the truth. He is the life. It's interesting. One day, some people um, came to Abraham Lincoln, and they had a proposition to him in regard to truth. And, and so they came to him with a uh, for him to make a decision that was based on a bunch of uh, suppositions rather than truth and rather than facts. So after hearing their logic, Lincoln asked them, how many legs would a sheep have if you called its tail a leg? And they answered, well, five. And the president said, no, it would only have four legs. Calling a tail a leg doesn't make it one. And I think that's just where we are today. People would just proclaim Okay, this is true, and because I say it's true, it's true. And 2,000 years ago, on the weekend of weekends, Jesus said, I came to establish truth. Not lies, not made-up stories and myths and suppositions. I came to establish truth so that the whole world would know that I am the one. And I want to tell you today this, truth is a person. And his name is Jesus. Truth has a power to liberate. Jesus said this. You will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Truth has a power to separate and consecrate and bring holiness to our lives. Praying in the upper room in John 17, 17. Jesus said, sanctify them in your truth. And your word is truth. Not only is truth a person. Truth has the power to liberate us and free us. Truth has the power to to consecrate us in His Word is truth. But the only way to worship God is with truth. You can't worship God with lies. And that's why it's important to know what the Scripture says because if you don't know what the Scripture says, you're going to worship in lies. You're not going to worship in truth. Jesus said, established this in a conversation with a woman by the well one day. And He said to her, He said these words. He said, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship how? In spirit and truth. And so Jesus came, last great conversation that he had with someone else was with a guy named Pilate, and he said this, I've come to establish truth. My kingdom is about truth. I am truth. And this weekend of weekends is about confirming this great reality and affirming it again that Jesus is the truth. So not only is he the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, Secondly, um, he came to establish truth and to make it clear that weekend. But thirdly, turn to Luke chapter 23 now. It is never too late. One of the beautiful things that took place in Luke chapter 23 is this conversation as well with these people on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. We know from Matthew twenty-seven forty-four that he was crucified with two people. And both of these thieves, they were called robbers, 
who were crucified with him, it says they, they hurled insults at Jesus and they reviled uh, Jesus. That was when they were hung up early in the morning. But something happens later in the day. So look with me, Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I think this, I have always been fascinated by this conversation as well. This, this conversation is amazing that is happening and taking place. So in the beginning, both of them are looking at Jesus, hurling insults at him. Now, later in the day, um, one continues the insults. Are you not the Christ? Why don't you, why don't you save us, save yourself and, and save us as well. And something has happened in a three-hour period with one of them. And his whole perspective has changed. His eyes have been opened and he has a whole different perspective of what is happening and taking place as the three of them are hanging on the cross. And both of these men are going to be indelibly linked with Jesus and they will die, all die on the same Sabbath together. And one spends his last moments embracing his pride and rejecting Jesus and the other spends his time coming to faith and accepting Jesus as his Savior. And I think in this we see the fantastic faith that is connected with this one thief and the unbelievable grace that is manifested in the very last moments of life to this man on the cross. And these two criminals are talking about something really significant. Who is Jesus? Can there be forgiveness of sin? Is there a place called paradise? Is there an afterlife? Is there some other, some other thing? And it's a fascinating conversation that's going on. So one continues the mockery and one bows as he's suffocating on the cross. There's lots of stuff going on around the cross in Golgotha that day, but this little moment between these three men hanging on the cross is incredibly significant. What brought about the change in the one guy? Was it those walking by saying, you saved others, can't you save yourself? Did he think, of, did he think for a moment, well, did he save others? I've heard about this. Maybe he could save me. Was he incredibly moved by and his eyes were enlightened by the Spirit to see that in the midst of the brutality of the crucifixion that Jesus offered no protest, there was no anger or him demanding any kind of rights? Or was he moved and his eyes opened and his heart changed when Jesus was talking to the Father and addressing him and offering forgiveness to all those that were passing by? Here's what we know. He confesses his sin in verse 41. He says, listen, we are getting what we deserve. We're sinners. He confesses his recognition of Jesus' holiness. This man has done nothing wrong. So he recognizes that reality of Jesus. And then he calls on Jesus for what he couldn't do for himself. Jesus, can I go to paradise with you? Can you take me with you? Is there some other reality And by the way, did you notice here, Jesus didn't invite him. What did he do? 
kind of invited himself, didn't he? I want you to see the beauty of this moment and the heaviness of this moment. You got three men. Crucifixion, you died by suffocation. You got three men pushing themselves up with nail-pierced feet so they could breathe, and then their body relaxes. They lift themselves up to breathe, and they're talking. They are doing this, lifting themselves up, talking, doing this. And one guy has come to the realization that this man right here can save me. Now, but from a human perspective, does it look like anybody hanging there that day could save anybody? But there was something about Jesus that was different than those two, and those two knew it. One reviled, one heart was just moved by it. And as this man, this man sees Jesus, he opens his mouth and he speaks to Jesus. He lifts himself up on the nails and he says this, asking another dying man for hope of the future. And what Jesus says to him is amazing. So as this man looked at Jesus, he saw him as God. He saw him as the one who was righteous in verse 41. He saw him as the one who was going to conquer death and that could bring him to the other side. He saw the crown of thorns on Jesus' head. And he recognizes this man has a kingdom. And so can I come to, with you in your kingdom? You're a king. Can I come with you into your kingdom? And this man expressed unbelievable faith far more than many others in the Bible. For he had come to know through revelation the essence of who Jesus was. That as Jesus was dying, he was doing something that could help him and change him in those last moments of his life. It's interesting. Jesus says to him, okay, let me tell you this truly. I'm going to tell you the truth because I've come to establish truth. And truly, I want to say to you, today you're going to be with me in paradise. In the Semitic languages, in Hebrew and Aramaic, this word paradise is interesting. It describes an oasis in the middle of the desert where you can't drink anything, but in the oasis there is green grass, there is water that's fresh, and there is shade. So there, as they are lifting their feet up on the nails, talking about paradise, Jesus lifts himself up on the nails And says to this man, I'm going to take you to a place of water, of refreshment, of shade, of life, of no pain, of bliss, of hope, and a future. You see, meeting Jesus forever changes your life. And there in the last moments, I think it's one of the beautiful pictures of the weekend of weekends. That it's never too late It's never too late for God to change a life and for someone to see the reality through revelation of the greatness of who Jesus is. Next, I want to just talk about this. We talked about it Friday night. Turn to John chapter 19 just for a moment. We're going to read a few verses in John chapter 19. Mark shared this on Friday night if you were here, but I just want to touch on it again because... I just was incredibly moved as I was preparing this week with this. John 19, verse 38. So Jesus has breathed his last. He's got a body. It needs to be buried. And in John 19, 38, it says this. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission 
So he came and took away his body, and Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I love this one. And it may speak to some of us in the room today. For some of us, maybe we're pretty timid about our faith, maybe in the workplace or maybe in a relationship, and we just don't speak up for what's true, and and we kind of laugh at things maybe at times that we don't need to laugh at, and there's just not an indication by our life um, that we are a follower of Jesus. And you may be one of those that's going, boy, I I don't like that about my life. I wish that would be different about me. I wish I would be more bold, and I don't really want to be a secret disciple, but I want to be someone that really authentically shows that I love Jesus. And I think Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus have been changed by the cross. Because before the cross, they were secretive. Now, we know that Jesus was before the Sanhedrin in some of his trials. Um, We don't know if they spoke up, and it looks like that they probably did not speak up. But something has changed now. And now after the cross, they just are okay about everybody knowing. They take the body of Jesus... Nicodemus uses a lot of his money, 75 pounds of spices back in those days. That was a chunk of change. They anointed Jesus' body. Joseph uses his tomb to place Jesus in there. By the way, we'll sing it in just a moment. They only needed it. Jesus only needed it for a couple of days. Because he wasn't planning to stay around there. And so they place him into the tomb. And and I I just love the picture here. You know what the cross does? It transforms us from secret disciples to public ones. It removes the timidity of our faith and moves us to live in the power of our faith. So let me talk about the next thing. Can you imagine what it must have been like to walk around with him for about three and a half years? To see him raise Lazarus, to see him heal the blind. You've left your business, you've left your family, and you're walking around with them. And now he's arrested on a Thursday night, and you scatter. And then then if you're Peter, you deny him three times when he's told you he's going to deny him three times, and he's got the word ahead of time. Can you imagine what Saturday was like for the followers of Jesus? Can you imagine how sad Saturday was? I think it was a dark time, but let me just say this. Sometime early Sunday morning on the third day, Jesus' heart started beating again. Brain waves. And the power of what happened inside a closed, sealed up tomb was so powerful that Jesus rose up out of his garments and his heart beat and he was alive. And we talked about this many times before, and and it's not cliche, but I just want to say it again. The stone was rolled away, not because Jesus did not have power, or he needed needed that. We see later on, he's able to walk through walls and step into a room. He could have walked through, and he may have, we don't know, but the stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so why? 
so that those who were there could go inside who knew where he was buried to say, he's not here anymore. He's gone. See, the empty tomb, the stone rolled away, was not for Jesus' sake. It's for our sake. It's for us to see this incredible, great reality. And when they encountered the resurrected Jesus in the garden tomb area that day, the angels and Jesus said, do not be afraid. And that's the message of the resurrection. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of the world because I have overcome the world. Do not be afraid of your flesh. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He is overcome because of the empty tomb, the devil. John twelve thirty one. Now the judgment of this world of this world and now will the ruler of this world be cast out first john three eighteen. whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning and the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil and he not only oh has overcome the world he has not only overcome the flesh he has not over only overcome the devil but he has overcome death itself He put death to death so that those who are in relationship with him have no fear of death. Romans 6, 9, Paul writes, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again for death has no dominion over him. And if we are in him, we are alive, covered, secure, spirit in us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now for thousands of years, People have tried to discount the resurrection and a lot of its silliness. It's not until the 16th century where they this this thing called the swoon theory entered. It didn't, wasn't didn't around wasn't around until the 16th century. And the swoon theory was this: is that Jesus didn't really die. They put him in the tomb, and he wasn't really dead. Now I want you to just think about the lunacy of this. He's been wrapped in linen cloths. He's had 75 pounds of spices put on him. He has been beaten and flayed on his back. He's carried his cross. He's had a crown of thorns on him. He's had nails in his hands, nails in his feet. And then when it was all over, they took a spear and they drove it up inside him near his heart sack. And they pierced the heart sack and blood and water flowed out. And so all of that happened and now he's in the tomb and he wasn't really dead and now he's revived and he's been able to figure out with 75 pounds of spices anointed on all of this how to get out of all of that. And he's got the ability and the power to push the stone open and overcome the Roman guard that's there and walk all the way to Emmaus and then appear, all walk all the way back with crucified feet to Jerusalem to appear where the apostles were. The lunacy of that is silly and most of it actually is. And I know you've got to come to faith with this. It's a faith issue. We don't see resurrections happening. But I'm telling you that there were people who were there and they said this. I know where he was buried and he wasn't there anymore. And the ultimate reality is simply this. If there was a body, then find it and show it. They could have crushed this quickly. It wasn't real easy to hide a body back in those days. You didn't have cars where you could just load a body in and drive 500 miles away somewhere. And the reality is simply this. 
He rose from the grave, and he defeated death. And because he defeated death, the hope of our lives is grounded in this reality, not grounded in anything that we have done because we can't do anything to fix ourselves. And so God came and he did what we could not do, we cannot imagine. And so in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus, there is this unbelievable hope, and his heart beats, and we can be restored. I want to share two last things. Can you imagine what Saturday was like for Peter? Your Lord is dead. You've left your fisherman business. You were one of the first followers called. You've denied him three times. There seems to be a commonality in all four of the gospel writers who say this, that, that uh, or at least the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that after Peter denied Jesus the third time and the rooster crowed for the second time, the scripture says Peter went out and it says he wept bitterly. And bitterly in the Greek means this. It means crying and pounding your fists. And Peter steps into the streets of Jerusalem and he can't believe what he's done. Can you imagine what Saturday was like for him? And they somehow found themselves together again on Sunday morning. Some of them are together in a room, and we know this to be true. And the women have gone to the tomb, and, and something significant has happened, and they've got this great news. And so Mark writes these words in Mark 16, 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, they bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were talking with one another, saying, Who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And then they looked up. And they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And the stone, it says, was very large. And they went into the tomb. And when they stepped into the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, um, he's risen, he's not here. Uh, he's risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him. And listen to what happens next in the context of Peter. Here's what the angel says, but go Tell his disciples, let me ask a question, is Peter a disciple? Not a trick question. Do you think Peter feels like a disciple? No. I think Peter probably feels like the prodigal son. I've spent and mocked my Lord. I'm no longer worthy to be a son. I'm on the outs. Watch what the angel says. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. You know the beauty of the weekend of weekends is that he restores the broken believer. If you're in the room today and this year, this calendar year, you have... 
trounced your faith and made a mockery of the glory of Christ and the cross and the resurrection and all of that, and you feel like I'm not worthy enough to really come to church and, and to be able to serve and to do anything because I'm just, I'm just on the outs. I want to say to you today the message of this weekend of weekends is you can be restored because a little bit later, Jesus appears on the shores in Galilee and five or six of them are out on the lake fishing. And Jesus calls out, hey, hey fishermen, y'all had a good night tonight and they can't even lie about it. We've got nothing, we've got nothing. Hey, throw your net out on the other side. They throw the net out on the other side. They catch all these fish. They bring the fish in. And John, John recognizes and John realizes and he says to Peter, he says, that's the Lord on the shore. Peter jumps out of the boat goes to the shore, when they get there, another miracle, Um, there's fish, Jesus hasn't been fishing, and he's got fish with a fire on the shore, and they have breakfast, and then Jesus has a conversation with Peter, three times he says, do you love me, Lord, you know I love you, do you love me, yeah, Lord, you know I love you, and Jesus says a third time, do you love me, and for the third time, Peter says his heart sank, because the Lord had asked him, and so the Lord said to him, listen, then you feed my sheep. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm, you're not written off. I'm going to use you to teach the church what it means to walk with me. And I'm going to use your brokenness, and I'm going to use this doubt that you had, and I'm going to use it to change you. And the message of this weekend is that God restores the broken believer. If you're a believer today and you're broken because of stuff that you've done, hear Peter. If Peter could stand here today, he would say, Look what he did in my life. We've been walking through both of his letters, and they've been amazing for us to walk through 1 Peter, and now we're walking through 2 Peter. A transformed person, restored, who three times said, I don't know him, I curse him, and now he's standing up on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people are coming to faith. See, this is the beauty of our God. It's the beauty of this weekend. It's not to write people off and say, we're done, you're done, you're done. It's to say, no, there's hope. There's hope in Christ. Last thing is this. I'm going to take us all the way back to whenever that was. It's a long time ago. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So I want to remind us this weekend, the weekend of weekends put an end to animal sacrifices because the Lamb of God became the sacrifice and the satisfactory one. His death was unique. It was powerful. It was a permanent death. It cannot be redone again. We don't crucify Jesus over and over again. It just needed to be one time. Because He is so holy and righteous that the sacrifice was perfect. So it cannot be redone. It was once for all. But what it can be done is retold. We don't redo it. We just retell it. Let me say it again. 
It's not to be redone. We just retell it. And I'm telling it again. And I love Easter weekend. I get the privilege of talking about the same stuff every year. And is it not fresh every year? The same story. The same story is fresh every year. And again, it just affirms God's words alive. You can tell the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I don't know what the millennial kingdom is going to be like, but it says there's going to be a marriage feast of the Lamb. It's going to be this great supper. And sometimes I wonder... I don't know how this works. Can you imagine all the believers, Old Testament, New Testament, that have come into faith and we're living on the earth and we're having the supper? Can you imagine what kind of table that is? What does that look like? How does that work? Can you imagine how many, yeah, how many portable tables you got to have for all that kind of stuff? I don't know what that looks like, but that's going to be awesome. And sometimes I've wondered if we're sitting at the table And Jesus says to somebody, hey, tell me your story. And every believer just leans in and listens to how somebody came to faith. And then Jesus says, you tell me your story. And everybody just listens. You see, it's the story of stories. A holy God came to sinful people and rescued them by laying his life down. So I just want to tell it again today, and I want to remind you and I of what Peter wrote. He suffered once, once for sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This word, bring us to God, is a Greek word that described back in those days that there was somebody called the presenter. And if you wanted to get into the king's presence, somebody had to have access to the king and the authority to bring you into the king's presence. And as Peter uses this word, he is saying this, Jesus is the one who brings us to the Father, who brings us into the relationship. And so on the weekend of weekends, I just want to remind us again this this weekend that the point of this weekend is not us and our nice new clothes. The point of this weekend is that Jesus is the center of everything. And he deserves our worship. And he is to to be the one that we are to pursue. He brings us to the Father. So let me close with this. He is the Old Testament fulfillment of the Passover. It is all fulfilled in Christ. He came to establish truth. It's never too late. He can empower you and I from secret faith, timid faith, to public, bold faith. His heart beat again. He rose from the dead. He has the power to restore somebody like Peter. And so he does because of the reality of the weekend of weekends. He restores the broken believer. And he removes the barrier and he brings us to God. And one day... One day, he's going to carry us and we will be literally in the presence of King Jesus. And can you not wait to see the scars? Can you not wait to see the scars? And we will fall on our feet and we will likely, if we, this picture, we will cast whatever it is before him because there's no worth in us. We've been, there's, there's a beauty to us, but 
there's the only worth to us is because the one who's worthy has done something to make us right. And the beauty of that is amazing today because you know your heart and I know my heart. And is there not a lot of darkness that lives inside of us? And even in the midst of that, there is coming a day where that darkness is gone. And we will be with him forever and ever and ever and ever because he has brought us to God. So that's just a few of the things, seven things that happened on the weekend of weekends. Next year, I'll do maybe seven more because there's lots of stuff that happened on that weekend. Tremendous implications for our lives. Let's pray.